printmaking, no matter how long you do it, still can be like exciting and unpredictable. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast, and they can enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon where supporters join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and it truly helps us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like exclusive merch, as well as bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes, sign up today, and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. If you want to save a little cash and still support the show, you can sign up for a yearly subscription and get 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. This episode of Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you've been following along on Instagram, and we really recommend that you do, you've no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with artists like the lovely Lilia Arnold, they have created a brand new line of custom printing inks and additives to push your practice even further. Lily's absolutely iconic shade titled Cactus Blossom is available for pre-order now. So head on over to Speedball's Print Posse shop at speedballart.com and find out where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Yakub Reyes. Yakub is an absolute delight to speak with and a wonderfully talented artist who thinks deeply about the ways in which his practice interacts with the broader world. We'll talk about using found objects to create one-of-a-kind prints, researching family history to help create a sense of personal identity, and the ongoing effects of colonialism. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to feel history today with Yakub Reyes. Hi, Yakub. How's it going? Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for working out the schedule and spending a bit of your evening with me tonight. Oh, yeah. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always good to hear your voice. (laughs) So before I dive into the questions I've got lined up for you here, would you please introduce yourself and let our dear listeners know who you are, where you are, and what you do. Awesome. Yeah, so my name is Yakub Reyes, and I'm a large-scale printmaker based out of Orlando, Florida. Um, I love to use um, my prints in uh, installations that the public can interact with, and I'm really um, passionate about creating relationships with people and really teaching and mentoring. Um, Mm. So that's kind of... uh, what I do, what I'm passionate about. And, uh, of course I, um, love all things, uh, social justice, um, and all things printmaking. So those are things that kind of motivate and, uh, inspire me along with my personal heritage and, um, uh, traveling to, to places where my family, um, grew up or where they're from. So, um, that's what I kind of encapsulate in my work. And, uh, yeah, trying to share that with others <laughs> so yeah. they have some, hopefully some inspiration to delve into their their own histories. So. Absolutely. So where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Well, I grew up in um, New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is uh, basically a college town in a way. Um, it's Rutgers University. And um, I was pretty much born to to my mom and and we were just you know doing the whole life thing just us um so she's a really big part of my life and she uh she really just instilled this uh sense of curiosity and um she would take me to like um museums and science centers and uh one summer when i was like six she read me like 250 books (sighs) and we kind of just like 
destroyed the whole library list. <laughs> uh, so you could imagine how many stickers I got. Oh, <laughs> you know, it'd be great. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, she she really invested time and like energy into kind of like fostering. Um, like, like I said, the sense of curiosity. So, um, which I'm really grateful for, um, because she did the most with basically the least, you know? Mm. Um, and that kind of just, uh, kind of like instilled this idea of like, what, what do we invest in? You know? Um, I feel like the, like our society is so kind of bent on like, you know, getting money and falling into this capitalistic society and stuff. But, you know, when you grow up not really having that, like you can still live like obviously a full and and, you know, fulfilling life, you know, and that's kind of what she like uh, showed me is that you you can invest in others with your time, you know, with your love, with your energy, with with your, you know, just being there, you know, um, and that's kind of that's kind of like what shaped me into, uh, I guess, my ultimate career path, which was becoming an artist. But that curiosity had, you know, a bunch of different bumps here and there where I was like, you know, going to school for like gaming design, and then I changed to engineering. And then I changed to Oh, I think like architecture is pretty cool, you know, uh -huh. and it was just like, I was just bouncing around everywhere, just kind of, you know, staying curious you know and i was just like you know what what can like challenge me and and what can i like stick with and and i guess uh out of all the the art mediums printmaking just stuck mm. um just because it was mm. so intense you know and and it was like a puzzle like everything was like a puzzle so yeah. um just yeah. Kind of, yeah deducting that and and using uh you know just the things from my upbringing um to kind of influence that um yeah. going back to where i was where i was born it was just like very gritty like kind of city um especially the way we were living you know just uh kind of jumping from apartment to apartment um just trying to maintain you know and um it kind of turned me into like a pretty resourceful you know person so uh i would make toys when i was a kid and i would just kind of you know if I wanted something, I would usually make it, you know? So when I got into printmaking, I was just like literally finding pieces of wood, like from construction sites or, or just like just anywhere. Like I, I really still dumpster dive for, for my wood. Cause I just think it just adds like another piece to the process, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I was just like finding all this messed up wood and, and, and making tools like out of like, um, like I would walk, um, along the, the railroad tracks and like, like find, you know, those nails and kind of like scrape them against the concrete and make like a point and do like a dry point on like a name tag plastic and, you know, see what kind of dry point I can, you know, mm -hmm. take out of that. So it, it's always just been, uh, kind of like I don't know just experimentation you know just yeah having that curiosity like why don't we ink up some of this carpet that someone threw away or why don't we you know and I, I love that yeah because it's just like like printmaking it can be so fiddly and so precious and so oh well you know this is the like tool that's from this special factory in Russia that only makes 800 of these a year or something like that. And, and of course, you know, there are those barriers uh, to accessibility through that, you know, if you say like, no, like, you know, you need mm -hmm. like, like this $10,000 press and this beautiful yeah. piece of, of perfect wood that's like not too hard and not too soft. And I love yeah. this like kind of punk rock printmaking that you're talking about that's like, yeah, like fucking print a piece of carpet. Like, what do you think? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like Katy Kolvitz was doing when she just was like, I'm just going to smash some fabric into a soft ground and see what happens, right? Like, it's, exactly. it's really, um, you know, I think that printmakers we, we can get so pulled into like the precision and the perfection and the like the, everything wiped perfectly in your edition identical and i love this totally opposite attitude of just like name cards and railroad spikes that's so fun <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and 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 you know it's it's kind of like it's not totally rejecting that scientific methodical approach to printmaking because there is a validity behind that mm -hmm. obviously 
um, where obviously, you know, people base their careers around it, like master printers and all this other stuff. But I get a lot of inspiration from like um, collage artists and calligraph artists because i feel like i mean they're straight up just using cardboard and you know anything that they can find mounted on a matrix and just figuring it all out so i mean you know i take that kind of like unruly you know breaking the rules um kind of style and then i and then i match it with like that precision you know like how can i make clean borders how can i you know even though you know the piece of wood like the print that I think you reposted with the two people in the boat, like that yeah. wood was totally like water damaged, like MDF, like from probably some substrate from like a, like I think they mount things on it for right. like a cabinet stuff, just like little, like um, kind of like to enhance the structure of the cabinets or whatever. And I guess, out in the Florida humidity, it just started basically disintegrating and I picked it up for some reason and this thing looked like exploded. And when I like was cutting it, it was just literally turning into dust. I bet. And yeah. Yeah. And then when I inked it up, I mean, my whole roller was like hairy <laughs> and it was like these weird sawdusty fibery thingies like splattering everywhere on the floor and stuff. And then I like lined up the 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 uh, unbleached muslin that I print on and I like, you know, printed it and it came out like perfect, like first try. And I was like, this is awesome, you know, because there's an uncertainty to printmaking. But, you know, to match that, like, like, let's break the rules and, and let's, you know, print on, you know, things that we're just curious about printing on, you know, and and stuff like that, like. That that's what's fun to me. Like a lot of my woodcuts actually come from like the fabric first. So like one of my pastimes is like you know digging through things and kind of like thrifting and and finding different things and and um usually I find like funky fabrics and those determine like what woodcut I'm going going to put on it. So like a lot of my work is kind of one of a kind because I've only found you know one piece of this printed cloth and then I made the woodcut for specifically for that piece of cloth. So it's just like, I mean, that kind of goes against the conventions of printmaking too. It's like, why would you do all that work for one print? You know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, um, and just DIY has always been close to my heart. I mean, I've, I've, always like uh i loved like growing up in the city and and seeing people kind of like bootleg you know wu-tang clan tapes and and nas ilmatic tapes and stuff like that and they would print out the album art on their own like from a printer and just like package it into a you know into a j card and and sell these totally ripped off cassettes like on the corner like that to me is diy too you know and it's just like it's just you know taking all those like elements you know that i grew up with and just kind of like combining it to you know create this kind of like uh anti-systematic process you know <laughs> yeah yeah and I think there's something in there too that I love when people approach their practice in a way where they do make these one-off works because it's one of the sort of I don't know if you want to call it bad raps but one of I think the misconceptions that people bring to printmaking is that the only reason why you do a woodcut or a etching or a lithograph is because you can make multiples and the only reason you'd want to make multiples is so you can sell a bunch of them and I think when you're doing work where you're saying, I am making a woodblock to meet this piece of found fabric that I only have one of, it's a really powerful statement in a philosophical sense of that printmaking is important because of the actual process that goes into it and also the kind of image that it creates that you can only get through woodcut, for instance. Like you can only get something that looks like a woodcut by doing woodcut. You don't do woodcut only because you can make multiples. And I just, I always think that's a really powerful statement for a side of printmaking that I think people often bring misconceptions to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I know a lot of people, um, I don't know if it's like a hoarder mentality or if they're like afraid to like, you know, give up that one piece that they've worked so hard for. But um, that's kind of usually, 
you know, the students that I mentor, they have that kind of mentality as well. It's like, you know, I was doing painting and I was pouring my heart and soul into this 14 hour canvas and and now someone wants to buy it and I don't want to get rid of it. So I'm just going to make a bunch of like digital prints and try to sell those before I sell the actual canvas. And it's just like, yeah, that's all great and everything. But I mean, I I feel like to, I mean, and I don't like look down on that in any way. Like that's their prerogative, I guess, you know, but, but my process is very like, just kind of like figuring out how, you know, I can push myself basically. Mm. Like I'm always in competition with myself. Like how, how can I, you know, challenge myself to like, like you only have one shot, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter how many proofs you pull, you only have one piece of that fabric and you only have, and, and, and if you mess up, I mean, this is oil based. I mean, what are you going to do? Sit there with a magic eraser and a toothbrush? <laughs> like it's not going to work out. You have to shrug your shoulders. And, and I, I, it's kind of like, you know, I, I spend so much time just prepping mentally, you know, um, and it all kind of builds up to that one single moment. And then what I can take from that moment is just one single print, you know. And I think that's what's special to me because it's like it kind of mimics like light, you know, mm-hmm. which which sounds really vague and, and <laughs> you know, big or whatever. But it's just like, you know, you have this life and, you know, what you make of it matters, what you invest in matters, you know. So I choose to use my time to invest in people and experiences. And, and, and then the end product is, is something that I can feel good about, you know, mm, that, yeah. that. You know, I think some of the best mentors that I've had were leaders because they didn't tell me what to do, you know, and I pride myself in teaching others um, without like deterring their what they want to say, you know. Um, So like, I know I kind of got off track, but but it's just like, you know, you you never know when the last time you'll have an experience with someone will be so you have to kind of make that count too, you know? So it just to wrap it all up, it just feels like that's kind of how I view my prints. It's like I have one shot and I hope that that shot is good. And I hope that all the time that I've invested is good and makes something good and makes me feel good. And, you know, no, I, I absolutely know what you're saying. And I, I think it's beautiful that, that, that idea of if you, if you're constantly sort of playing it safe and acting like you're always in dress rehearsal, you're never really experiencing things and you're always kind of holding something back. And, you know, when you have that one shot or you have that perhaps one shot that you don't even know is going to be one shot, you need to bring everything that you have to it. And in the end, it's a higher risk, but the reward spiritually, emotionally, logistically is so much higher when you do bring your full self to everything as if it was your yeah, and making making that moment count, you know, um, just being present, you know, and intentional. I think that's really big in my work, too. It's like there's so many cuts, you know what I mean? And there's so many there's a lot of like precision that goes on, not only with the printing, but with like the carving and the etching or, or whatever I, you know, put my time into. It's like there's there each mark is intentional, you know, and if and if I mess up, then I'm going to go back, you know, to to the problem to, you know, make it intentional, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, Because people always are like, oh, my gosh, it's so like perfect. And I'm like, no, it's not actually. And like, do you ever make mistakes? And I'm like, yeah, there is there's millions of them in this one thing that you're looking at, but you don't see it because I, I can I can kind of like, you know, morph it into something else, you know? And that's like what I love about printmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Because your your woodcuts are large scale and incredibly detailed. I've unfortunately only been able to see them in, in reproduction. I hope to see them in person someday. But even yeah. in the um, in photos that I see online, it just looks like a countless tiny lines uh, is how you get this really distinctive style. And so I can definitely see why people seeing it particularly in person would just think 
every single one of those lines you put with absolute intention because it all they all seem to work. They all come together for the final composition. But, you know, rolling with the unexpected things that happen in the creating the woodcut, I can imagine is just part of the process to get the final look where it does look all intentional. Yeah, yeah. And but but also, you know, going going with well, usually when most people see my work in person, they're usually like they usually say like Oh, that's a really cool drawing. Right. <laughs> or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, it was a drawing. <laughs> and then I also, you know, did this. this but, and, and that's a fun part, too. And then, like, telling people, like, what it really is. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's <laughs> ridiculous. You know, I love their reaction. Um, but, uh, yeah. but, yeah, it's definitely, like, taking those mistakes, um, sometimes, like, they lead to other things, which I love, too. It's like printmaking no matter how long you do it still can be like exciting and unpredictable you know mm-hmm. if you let it you know um it's kind of like a relationship like yeah you can do the same thing every day and you can you you and your partner can just morph into one big gray blob and just <laughs> say the same things and you know go to the same places and eat the same thing and and you know just have that you know like that monotonous type of uh feel that we were talking about before with the pandemic but um or you can like intention you know set intentions and and you know invest time and energy to make every day like with that person exciting or fulfilling or you know whatever so that's kind of how I see my relationship with printmaking too. It's like, I, I don't want it to get stale because I still think that it's exciting, you know? Yeah. I love what you're saying about keeping the relationship with your media active and engaged the way you would if you wanted a partnership to last, any partnership to last. And that's something that I feel like we don't get told a lot about, both in platonic and romantic relationships and in the relationships with our creative outlets. Because the way stories work is that, and at the end, the two people finally got together and seen, you know, like you don't actually see what what, that the interesting things that can happen as relationships evolve and the real creative process that goes into keeping it fresh, you know. And I think that's that's so significant to say as well, you need to do that with your creative practice. And it's something that I've even found like with the podcast, you know, I don't want to fall into a period where I'm just like, yeah, 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 I know how to do interviews, whatever, line them up, I'll just do them, you know, boom, boom, boom. Like, I want to stay challenged and I want to stay engaged and I want to stay interested because that's when you produce good work. And there's no, for me anyway, I, there's no way around that. Like, unless I'm challenged, unless I'm interested, what I make is going to be shit. Like, I can't get it, you know, I have <laughs> yeah. to engineer it in a way where I'm feeling that engagement. Otherwise, how can I expect other people to be engaged? Yeah. And and not only that, like, you're you're the only one that picks up your torch every day, you know, mm. like, no, no one's really going to continue to do what you do, you know, um, because you're the only one that can really do it, you know, and you've you've fostered, you know, and, and grew this this thing into a great thing, you know, where others can share. And, and it's just like, you know, Everyone else will have a million excuses. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. But you're the one who's investing your time and energy. And that's what's special and specific to that, you know. And 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 without, without that very specific and special um, part of that, you, you know, and your team, um, it would it would just die, you know. And like a, that's like something that I refuse to accept for my personal, you know, endeavors and stuff. Um, because, you know, you do, you do, uh, you do invest time and, and energy and, and it's not like, you know, we all hope it's not in vain, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, life is unper- unpredictable and it's either, you know, you can be like that old person that sits around and hates, you know, everything around you, or you can like accept it and you either improve or, or you, you let go, you know, mm-hmm. um, so at this moment in my practice, you know, and involvement with the community in my own practice, I, I'm I'm just ready to keep on improving. Yeah, I'd love oh. to get a chance to talk specifically more about your practice and the content of your work. We could have talked about like the scale and some of the philosophy behind it. Um, but 
actually sort of your your visuals and your message. And I know that you do a lot of work around colonialism in the Caribbean and making just absolutely these large-scale, incredibly powerful images. But how would you define what you do? And if someone, if for instance, if someone was to ask you, say, on a podcast, like, <laughs> how, would you, how would you describe your practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that going back to the, that curiosity statement, I'm just like super curious about like my history and what 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 are those components that make make me me you know Mm. um everyone has always been or ever since like the the dna kind of tests and stuff everyone has really been like delving into like their own personal histories which i think is exciting um and that's kind of like what i'm doing but i don't know if i would ever do that because i'm just sketched out by people having my saliva for some reason yeah yeah your dna forever and ever and then like kind of like by extension like your whole family's dna who didn't agree to it yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, and then, yeah, I don't think they'll clone me or anything, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I don't know, but, it, but it's also interesting, you know? So I think I'm doing that in like in a historical way. Um, <clears throat> and I know like now the big talk is like, you know, about our history and the accuracy of our history and like who wrote, you know, our history books and, and all that type mm, of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what I question. It's like sometimes things are you know, celebrated in books that need to be questioned. Sometimes things are glossed over that need to be questioned. Sometimes things are, are, uh, are kind of said plainly, which need to be looked into more, you know? <laughs> so I would say that my work is like a growing, um, a growing, uh, kind of like in-depth look into, you know, the, the colonialism in the Caribbean and how that is continuously evolving. Like, like people say, oh, yeah, now that we're in post pandemic, and then I scratch that out. And I'm like, no, we're still in a pandemic. <laughs> yes. We actually gained, uh, like, a second and probably third variant already. And so we're not post anything, actually, like, like, there are still, you know, workplaces and stuff that are like tripping over their um, you know, procedural, you know, things that they just wrote, wrote up a couple months ago. Like no one knows what's going on. No one knows what's happening. We're not post anything, you know? Um, so I kind of threw out the idea of post-colonialism because there's always ripple effects that are affecting, you know, people today, you know? Um, and sometimes that boils down to tourism, you know, like, Oh, you know, I, I went on a cruise ship and I visited these islands and, and everything was so great, but it kind of sucked because they didn't have McDonald's or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like it, it's it's questioning all those things like, you know, why does the um, Jamaican artist feel the need to like make little wood stat wooden statues of SpongeBob? Right. You know, like like is that really their message or is it because they're shifting their whole you know practice and purview to accommodate you know tourists because that's really one of the only ways that they can continue their craft while making a living you know like there are so many subtleties that um have come from conquest that we can't say is like thrown out you know these are still relevant and they're they're definitely relevant in southeast asia they're definitely relevant all around the world, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Kind of tying that in, it's just like, I'm, I'm always like exploring different ways that, that these imperial powers kind of put and held their thumb, you know, on these different countries mm. and they're countries mm. that, you know, are inside of me in my blood, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, Cuban and Pakistani. So those are all, you know, areas that I've experienced like, high levels of colonialism, you know, um, all the way down to being separated into different countries, you know? Um, so it's just, uh, it's just something I'm passionate about. And I think that I can actually, you know, I'm moving towards like finding a universal language that, that applies to a lot of people that have experienced or are still experiencing that. So that's kind of what I'm working towards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I I think that's so important what you're saying about the idea of post-colonialism being a misnomer. Because I think when people think of colonialism, they're like, well, we're not, you know, we're not on giant ships powered by the wind going across the sea anymore. Like, 
you know, I think that's what people think about is they have this very specific historical vision of what colonialism is. And, you know, don't expand that idea to things like you say, like, um, people creating SpongeBob wood carvings or, um, the fact that in Thailand, you know, it's very difficult to find deodorant for women that doesn't have skin bleaching elements to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's all of these things that continue to reverberate, but are also not just passive reverberations. You know, it's, it's, they're not just ripples in the pond. They're like actively still creating changes to society, changes to the way people perceive themselves, changes to people's values, changes to people's relationship to their identities. And so you can't say that it's, it's really post colonial because it's still happening actively you know i can i can tell you that whenever i go into a 711 here you know and look at like the skincare products it's um it's all there yeah 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 i i i definitely attribute it to some sort of like stockholm syndrome mm. that's kind of what i what i call it it's just like when when you start kind of loving your captors you know and 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 not only that taking it further and accepting it into your culture and letting it, it it's not about letting it it's just that's kind of what happens it's it, it becomes a part of a culture you know mm-hmm. and and just you know just uh kind of going back and questioning you know why these have become standards now you know um when they previously weren't standards you know um and i'm so passionate about the caribbean not only because you know my mom raised me in that specific environment where I was close to my Cuban and Puerto Rican family. Um, it's also because like, that's where the global trading system began. Yeah. So yeah. you enjoy Amazon because people in the Caribbean and, and their ecosystem were exploited. You know, um, they were just pumping out gold from, you know, Brazil and, and, you know, Puerto Rico, Cuba, like the whole area. It was like, it was literally a rush of European powers. That's why there's so many different, you know, languages just in that such a small area, you know, Mm -hmm. we have like French, you know, in Haiti, we have, you know, Dutch, you know, Netherlands, Britain, Spain, then later America. It's like, America does not have a clean bill of sale. Like we are still putting these pressures on other people like in the Middle East and and continuously in Puerto Rico. Like they have no representation, but you sure as heck want to keep them on as like a a side, a side thing, you know? And it's like they have crazy taxes. Um, Most of the time the ships come with spoiled milk. It's like or whatever food and and. You can't, you know, everything is just like, they're really just, I don't know. It's all like putting pressure on people and and going back to that kind of Stockholm syndrome that I was talking about. But like the whole global system was was literally made from those small islands, just giving up the tobacco and coffee and 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 sending people back to Europe. Mm -hmm. and, And, you know, it was just creating that triangular trade where they were like taking uh, you know, Africans off the, the the West Bank of Africa into the Caribbean and then moving those people to other parts. You know, it's just it's it's all crazy and relevant. And we talk about it, you know, and America's always in the forefront of that because they, you know, heavily continued that. But the Caribbean really like didn't did not experience the <laughs> abolishment of slavery until years after it happened in, in America, you know, um, and, and like literally I, I, I did I did one of my exhibitions at a, a local college. Um, and it was based on Zora Neale Hurston's um, book called, I, I believe it's called Barracoon. And uh, basically this book um, was, uh, it, it was never released because she she wrote it in the vernacular of the person that she was interviewing, which his name was Cujo. And uh, so he was like the last known uh, enslaved person. Mm. And that was okay. like, that was in the, ni- that was 1927. Fuck. Like, like, if you just let that set in, it's called Barracoon, the story of the last black cargo. And and 
So basically, she was writing in her his vernacular, and um, that's why the book didn't get published until like 2018 or something. Mm. Like they're like, no, you need to write it in your style, the correct way, MLA format. Like really, it's just like it's crazy that you know um, they're barring like they meaning you know, the gatekeepers, the powers that be, whoever that that's found in academia and, and everywhere. Basically, they tell us what to focus on and what to be passionate about and what to like learn and listen to and all that. And that's exactly what I'm going against, you know? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna like give the thumbs up and be like, thanks for, thanks for feeding me like a bird and throwing up in my mouth. I'm going to accept, <laughs> I'm going to go off of, you know, off of this nest and, and everything will be all right. Cause I trust you, you know, no, like I'm always into questioning stuff and it's like realizing things like that. It's like, I mean, there's so many things we don't know and, and that we have to look into and so many things that are right in front of us. But do we take the time to, to delve mm-hmm. into those things, you know, and, and, and kind of expose it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a, a illustrative message that I won't listen to your story unless you tell me the story in my own language, you know, in my own vernacular, basically, because it's not it doesn't sound like it was written in anything that people couldn't understand, but it actually was written just not in the white colonial academic language. Right. And so it's not even it's 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 this uh, complete unwillingness to engage in something that's not completely in line with one's comfort zone in the story that people want to hear. Yeah. 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 And, and just knowing that literally the last black, black enslaved person in the U S was still alive in the twenties, you know, yeah. like th- these histories don't just fade away after hundreds of years, you know, like, like this and and now that book is like regarded as like you know a literal time stamp of like that whole like last generation you know mm-hmm. just just in the way that he taught like that that gives me goosebumps that that it's just like it's just like a it's like an archaeologist dig of that history you know through someone's vernacular like they already learned so much just in the way that he talked and stuff so mm-hmm. um just knowing that those histories are like right in front of us is kind of what keeps me, you know, pushing and, and exploring this idea. Because like I said, it's it's not erased and I'm not going to let it be erased because a lot of cultures have been erased because, you know, the new generation, you know, kind of didn't listen to their their grandparents stories and didn't didn't invest time into, to, um, you know, learning what they went through or, or how the times were like, I mean, I, I don't take, you know, my grandma for granted. Like I'm always asking her, Hey, Nana, how was it, you know, growing up in Puerto Rico? And she would tell me funny stories like running up, you know, palm trees when her, you know, parents wanted to smack her butt with, a, <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. But then you realize other things where it's like, wow, you were really walking up and down, like basically mountains with no shoes, you know? Yeah. And it's like, wait, wait, Nana, you didn't have a stove. Like, you guys were literally camping every day, basically. And and you had, you had what? It was 13 siblings. And wait a minute, like after your mom died, you had to, you, you were nine, like you had to take care of all your brothers and sisters. Mm. Oh, that's crazy that you, you know, your mom, before she died, she was like washing her hair in waterfalls, like, uh, and, and taking, you know, taking those, like, it's, it's almost like sublime, you know, like taking these, these images that she kind of draws for me with her words and, and, and taking those and like humanizing and encapsulating her history into things that, that I can apply to like a general history of like where we came from with the Tainos and then pushing it further to like where we came from more in like a universal sense, you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to continuously like explore. Mm. And and hopefully, you know, I can get to, into the mode where, where I, where the message does become, you know, more universal. But um, yeah. right now I'm really focusing on those personal histories, you know? Yeah. Well, you mentioned at the beginning of our chat, that you're interested in installations that the public can interact with. And I'm wondering if you could talk to that a little bit more, because I feel like that could be a great way, you know, to illustrate the way to make the personal, 
universal or to make history feel more present, you know, is to actually have not just a passive engagement with art objects. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my, um, so one of my last installations, so obviously history is a really big, um, a really big thing in my work and, um, and histories don't really, you know, fade unless we let it. So what I did was I actually, um, I interviewed uh, some of my close friends and about their experiences moving to America. And um, that was called um, The Plant We Found uh, Grew Into a Flower But Shortly Died Thereafter. And it kind of, and I feel like that title kind of encapsulates like the feeling that I wanted um, to portray in that that installation so um it was really there were there was a common thread that that um kind of ran through all of their stories and that was like you know the hope or prospect of a new country um and the desperation some of them were seeking asylum and um the loss of family friends and the basically displacement and up uprooting of uh everything that they've known, you know, like they didn't know that they were different until they came to America, you know, um, because their schools and, and where they were, um, it was all people that looked similar to them, you know? Um, so all these experiences that were super, it was just mind, mind blowing, like the way that they told their, their experiences. And what I drew from that were, you know, two sp different woodcuts, but, um, Basically, after I interviewed them, I um, created a zine that took specific excerpts from what they said. And then I created um, an installation that people could go up to the CD player that was on like this basically dilapidated kind of like beach scene um, with palette. And the palettes were screen printed. And I use a lot of palettes in my work because of the importing and exporting of goods mm -hmm. and how it relates mm -hmm. to like um, that kind of like displacement of people. And um, so the public was able to come look at the zine while actually listening to these interviews. And some of the interviews were in Spanish. Some of the interviews were in um, Nigerian. So there was, there was just a, a good mix and, and kind of exposing people to like, you know, different cultures and experiences. And um, they were all transcribed because I love, you know, making work that's um, accessible because I know that, you know, a lot of people can't hear mm -hmm. and, you know other things like that. So I always try to accommodate. And basically they were able to interact um, with these people's experiences. And, and a lot of people did connect with that. And a lot of people actually experienced those things that, that they were talking about too. So it, it it's, for me, I love, like, for me, I try to let my installations, um, kind of become like, like a conduit, you know, like I, I, I just want to be a vessel where, where people, kind of pour their message into me and uh, and then I kind of package it and pour it out so that the community can can like uh you know accept it and and experience it mm. um so it was really it was really kind of like interesting to you know not be the forefront of that you know it, it was awesome to to put their stories and their experiences in the forefront of that project so that was kind of one of the the last ones uh, the last like public interactive installations that I did. Right. Yeah. And I think that was, that was super important um, for other people to experience. Cause, and it, and it really raised, you know, that kind of question, like, who is your neighbor? You know, like, are you doing your due diligence to learn about people and to understand their experiences before passing judgment or, mm -hmm. or, you know, to wave your fist at them, like you parked in the wrong space. It's like, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what people are going through you don't know their experiences you don't know where they came from you don't you know so uh hopefully i think i I've, hopefully i feel like the way that i packaged that was to erase awareness awareness about that that theme and and to you know kind of give people that curiosity into other people's stories yeah so. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful and such such a fucking important message. <laughs> like, right, particularly like I I feel like you know for all time people have always said now more than ever, right? But truly, now more than ever. I mean, there's so much divide and division and judgment and animosity. Just I think particularly in the United States, but I mean, I'm seeing it 
in Thailand, there's huge conflicts, protests going on right now between the people in the government and the people who support it and don't. And it's just seeing another human and, and thinking that they're so different from you or thinking that they're your enemy just because of the assumptions that you bring, you know, and, and not, as you say, like not knowing the story, not being willing to meet someone just with that base level of human empathy is so unfortunate and so pervasive right now. And I think I'm sure part of that is just fear and pain that people are in. Um, you know, of course, because of the, uh, the pandemic has just infinitely expanded fear and pain around the world. And pain makes us myopic. It makes us focus on what we know and who we are and our feelings and makes us feel justified and not being empathetic. Um, you know, it's like, I'm hurting, so I don't have to care about you hurting, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's such a, you know, maybe the most important message you can give is, is that human connection, the shared, the shared humanity that people have. Um, and of course, as you say, like not judging someone because you don't know their story. Everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about, as the phrase goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to my woodcuts, it's like, I want to humanize, you know, my ancestors. That's, that's really, what my goal is, it's like, I don't want them, you know, like, every time I visit like a a Holocaust, you know, memorial, it's like, you just see numbers upon numbers upon numbers upon numbers. And it's like, each one of those people had dreams, you know, they were like real living, breathing, like people. And just to be a person is already amazing, you know, and it's just like them being reduced to a number. It's like they had family, they had aspirations, they had all that stuff. And it always like breaks my heart, just that specifically that moment in time, of course, because that was just tragic you know just just to to the the amount you know it was just unsurmountable basically but you know my my goal for you know with my work and and specifically you know focusing on the caribbean is like i don't want my ancestors you know to become like oh it was yeah columbus came and then they all got sick and then they were eradicated the end you know yeah (laughs) because that's how it's always like told and it's just like no, these people loved each other. And it maybe maybe it wasn't the love that you know. Maybe it wasn't the Notebook 5. Or maybe it wasn't <laughs> Twilight 17. Or maybe it wasn't, you know, like maybe it wasn't packaged the way that you think or or experience or, or find love to be. Because, you know, love love is good. It's it's perfect. It's it's just. And when I think about just and justice, that always that that never really it might not fall into what you you understand it to be, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and that can be OK, too. You know, um, that's just what different cultures and, and different experiences bring. Yeah. And, and that acceptance, that acceptance is like what I'm, you know, trying to move towards is like maybe, you know, these things a lot of things aren't made for you and maybe you should just accept that, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is such an important message. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I want to like humanize, you know, hopefully, you know, the, to the best that I can, like their experiences and make, make, you know, kind of, kind of come to the realization that, you know, these people are still around too, you know, a lot of, there, mm-hmm. there are still Tainos and Caribs and Arawaks like uh, across South America and the Caribbean, you know, it's, it's not something of yesteryear that we kind of forgot or they're all gone. Like, like how we talk about native Americans, you know, these people are still here. They're still relevant. They're still important and they need to be mm-hmm. invested in, you know, because that is the last of like, you know, pure like this this ancient knowledge and and something that should be revered and respected you know not something that's kind of glossed over in in your history book so that's kind of what i want to invest my time and energy in um is not forgetting these stories and 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 really humanizing these people that are still around you know (laughs) yeah yeah it's 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 I think, yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier of that sense that people have that colonialism happened a long time ago. Indigenous people in the Americas happened a long time ago. You know, these just absolutely, um, you know, slavery happened a long time ago. Like it's just completely false 
placations that somehow, you know, a lot of the U.S. educational system kind of instills in people like, oh, it was, it was a really long time ago. And like everybody who was involved is dead. So you don't need to feel bad about it. Like, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, absolutely not. Like this is still living history, living people living generational trauma, living economic and social repercussions that are happening. And the, the, the sterilization, there was sterilization of women in, in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, Puerto Rico was one of the first places to be bombed by its own country. So the U.S. has turned its back on many things. And, and this is not you know, that long ago, mm-hmm. you know, these, these nationalists, um, you know, Puerto Rican nationalists that wanted to free the country, they would, you know, get bound and gagged and, you know, everything. The list goes on, you know, it was like literally the U.S. captured Puerto Rico and continued to abuse it. And, yeah. and that's what we're seeing now, you know, in Cuba, you know, it, it's just like the U.S. has, oh, okay, embargo this, tax this, mm-hmm. da, da, da. and it's always like a chokehold on on these islands because the U.S. didn't get their way, you right. know, and yeah. it's just like, but you are like, you're like letting a dictator do these things and, you know, you're, you're, you're basically cutting these islands off from the rest of the world and people are dying because of that they have been dying you know yeah and it's it's real real people like as you said like people who love and have real lives like not just numbers people who are just like us you know with ambitions and (laughs) hopes and dreams and families and yeah it's it's not something that's far away Yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, they sweat, they they hurt, you know, they they do all the same, you know, things that we can feel too. And and that's the that's that human experience, you know? And and I hope that people can meet others there and then grow or or decide make their decisions about others and stuff like that. Like but we we have to definitely kill our ego and and you know, lower a lot of, you know, things in us that, that mm. prevent us from, from experiencing others, you know? Yeah. Well, Yakub, I cannot believe we are already <laughs> at the hour recording mark. I always feel like I can just talk to you forever. <laughs> I feel like. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, so I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing your, your story and your art with us. And I'm just yeah, so delighted to connect again. And I, I really hope that in the next couple of years we can meet in person and, and chat more because it's always a pleasure and inspiring to speak with you. Yeah, same. And I and I look forward to that. I know it's going to happen. So I'm sure um, it will. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely appreciate you and, and all the work that you do for our community. Uh, I think it's important, it's needed, and, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, have a wonderful evening in Orlando, and we'll definitely be in touch, yeah? All right, awesome. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Catherine Baca Bellinas, president of the Print Club of Rochester, which has been running continuously for the past 90 years. Nine zero. We'll talk about print clubs and how they support artists and collectors alike, the benefits of membership, and the club's wonderful history of commissioning work from printmaking greats past and present. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.